This is the Bema Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we discuss the many teachings of Matthew 18, including some parables and rabbinic insights from Jesus. It's a very ambitious goal to get through the entire chapter of Matthew 18, but oh, I, I, we're going to do it. The whole chapter. Let's just do this. Again, this was part of my body of work earlier I didn't even deal with, but our every verse promise, Brent, has changed that. Your every verse promise. <laughs> I deserve that. This is, this is true. It's very true. All right, let's just dive right in. Some of this stuff we're going to deal with in depth. Some of us we're just going to like, yeah, we've talked about that. Move along. <laughs> All right, here we go. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. I won't be dealing with any deep exegesis here of this little teaching, but we did hear some of my creative creative thoughts. I think it was a few podcasts ago when I read that chapter that I had written about my daughter. I think the episode was called She Giggled, and uh, we got to hear that that whole chapter opened with just some thoughts I had about um, how this interaction with the little children um, took place. I don't know if this was just an abstract teaching, um, but uh, I I envisioned there was more to it than just, oh, hey, Jesus grabbing a little kid, pulling him over, sitting him on his lap, being like, hey, become like a child. And this isn't the only time the disciples talk about who's the greatest. My goodness, no. And I think we, we kind of referenced that earlier in this session where we talked about um, the just the diversity of the Havara that Jesus has here. You have so many different worldviews colliding in these 12 Talmudim, let alone the others that probably follow them and go all the other places that they go, whether it's the 72 or the women, or there are, there are other disciples other than the 12. Um, so there's a lot of people and I'm sure it leads to very common. I mean, I'm in campus ministry. I got to travel around the country. I'll tell you one common experience I have at every campus ministry I go to different organizations, not just impact. Um, you always have a bunch of very young, uh, group of young adults who are very adamant about the worldview that they have and the things that they're learning. And it's a part of the process. I don't fault them for it. It's a part of growing up. It's a part of owning your own worldview. But there's a whole lot of like, uh, no, this is obviously the way to see it. No, you're stupid. Like, this is obviously the way to see it. And and what is that really? That that jockeying around of worldview is really just a conversation about who's the greatest. Like, you're not sitting around literally going, I'm the greatest. No, Peter, I am the greatest. They're actually arguing about my worldview and where I stand. And it's really an argument about who is the greatest. And I, and I use young adults because it's easy to picture, but I'll tell you one thing I've learned being in church ministry is we get more sophisticated in the way that we have these arguments, but we don't change. Our human nature is still the same. And if you don't believe me, jump on Facebook um, and look at the way that we post about this stance and that thing and this worldview and just these loud social media posts that scream, I'm the greatest. So we're, we're far from growing out of this 2,000 years later. But you are correct. All right. I got nothing more to say about that. Let's keep moving. All right. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. All right. So while we're here, I'll just, uh, some have suggested that when Jesus says these little ones, and there might be a couple other references in other gospels that impact this perspective, 
But some people have suggested that when Jesus says that, the term little ones is the same kind of term that it appears that Jesus will use elsewhere or that other rabbis of his day would use to speak of their Talmudim, kind of like their spiritual children, their little ones. So it is possible that Jesus motions to his disciples and says, do not cause my disciples to stumble. I think back to what I believe was our last episode, Brent, where Peter was confronted about taxes. And how many other times have we been reading a story and people don't want to talk to Jesus, they want to talk to the, to the, disciples. To the disciples. And I wonder if there's, there could be a little passing like, hey, everybody, don't cause my own Talmudim to stumble here. I'm their rabbi. I I don't necessarily take that position primarily. I think in the context, particularly of Matthew here, I definitely, I'm coming right off the story of having faith like a child. I think Jesus is still referencing children here. There are children that are growing, that are being developed, that are learning what it means to walk with God and to know God and to seek God. Do not cause one of these little ones to stumble. I mean, he specifically calls out one of these little ones those who believe in me. Sure. Stumble. Right. Absolutely. And that could go either way. You can see somebody having either position and taking that their direction, but absolutely. Now I think Brent, uh, if you remember, you came with me, where, where are they at by the way? Location? Uh, what did we say? Capernaum? Yeah. They're in Capernaum, right? So they're in Capernaum. Now you were with me at the ruins of Capernaum, Brent. Can you remember what their main export was in Capernaum? Oh gosh. Do I have these mixed up in my mind? Which one is, is Capernaum the one with the Catholic Church on it? Uh, yes, it is. Okay. Correct. Main export. I don't recall. They had a really dark basalt rock that they used. Mm. Can you remember what they made out of it? No. They made like food <laughs> processing, uh, whether it was... Um, uh, mortar and pestle kind of thing? Yeah, mortar and pestles or the larger version of just a grain mill, a flour mill. Oh, like sure. To, to put those kind of things. We always talk about Goliath's earplug. It looks like a big, huge, gigantic earplug, and then you put the mill on top of it, and you can even put another earplug, for lack of a better term. This is not the scientific term for this. Uh, and the top of that, and then you spin it around, and the weight of those two plugs on either side is what grinds your grain into flour. So they had those things. And one of the other things that they made is a, what do you suppose in this passage? Jesus is uh, in Capernaum. Millstones. A millstone. We talked about rabbis. Rabbis will never teach about what, Brent? About anything without being able to point at it. Point at it. So very, very, um, um, this is what we would expect. Jesus in Capernaum, the place where they literally make millstones. I've even been in Turkey, uh, like, I'm pretty sure it's thousands of miles away. Somebody needs to check, but um, it's at least hundreds of miles away, if not thousands of miles away. And uh, being in a place where we found a mortar and pestle that is you that was made in Capernaum, the same basalt rock. You just know it's the only place in that ancient world that made those. And it got all the way over to Asia and Asia Minor. So this is the kind of place where you would imagine Jesus being like, oh, hey, and by the way, if you make one of these stumble and he points over his shoulder, it would be better for you to have one of those millstones tied around your neck. And where does Capernaum sit, Brent? Right on the... On the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee. So he has this perfect visual if you cause these to stumble, it would be better for you to tie one of those on your neck and be thrown in there than to await the judgment that you'll have to answer for from God for causing a little one to stumble. So um, just some context there when you're hearing it, and you're, we always think of it in the abstract, to realize that Jesus is using very ready visual examples to make his point is always very helpful. But then he goes on to talk some more in this passage. So go ahead and pick up where you left off. Uh, just a quick follow-up. Turkey is 
215 miles away. Like the closest part of Turkey is 215 miles away from the right. Galilee. So, so hundreds will be the yeah. right term that I was looking for. Not quite. I'm thousands. guessing for most of the places you'd want to be in Turkey, you're looking at 500, 600 miles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It'd be Philadelphia where I remember finding If you're flying, the, I guess. Not Philadelphia. It would be Laodicea where I found... I didn't find it. Ray pointed it out as we were walking through that mortar and pestle on just sitting on the ground there in the middle of nowhere. So that would have been a wise way. I don't know why I was thinking thousands. And now that I think about it, I'm like, well, that's too far. That's why we got Brent Billings, ladies and gentlemen. You never know. You never know. Distances that great are hard to judge. Sometimes. Absolutely. Especially on the other side of the planet. Uh, let's see what we were saying. Oh, I did want to ask also. So he says a large millstone. Yeah. So is there like... What is the range of size we're talking about here? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know specifically how to answer your question, but there would have been small millstones and then larger millstones. There would have been millstones that you would, could have just worked by your own self, like in just a small little mill. I've seen, um, I actually take people to a place called Yad Hashmana, um, and they'll have like just one or two people uh, millstones. And you have ones that have to be moved by like a donkey or multiple slaves so larger yeah. i guess maybe the implication would be large enough that if it is tied around your neck you're not coming back up out of the water correct imagine a millstone the size of a very large pickup truck tire um compared to one of a very very large jacked up pickup truck 38 inch tire that would be the <laughs> difference between like your regular millstone. That is not a picture that really rings true in my mind, but I'm sure some listeners out there will understand <laughs> what you're talking about. That's what I think when I think of a millstone. It's just round. It looks like a wheel. And I'm like, well, what kind of size a wheel? Oh, I know. Pickup trucks. I'm from Southern Idaho. All right. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done with questions. If we go long today, this is now your fault. I Brent know. I can't, I can't take this blame. <laughs> if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Okay, so let's just deal with the whole fire of hell thing. And then we'll back back up and remind ourselves that that's not actually the point of what Jesus is getting at. But let's do the hell thing because I have at least a few passing times in session three made references to hell being a very present tense reality. And I try to be very honest when we come through these moments where we start talking about these things. And most of the time that I feel like we talk about hell and its different realities and places it shows up in Jesus' teaching, we are definitely talking about a present tense Jewish understanding of heaven and hell. And let's just throw a couple books up there, Brent. Let's re- let's represent the whole conversation, okay? Uh, let's tag uh, the, the, the big famous heretical work, Love Wins, by Rob Bell, the one that got him in so much trouble. Let's actually encourage people to actually read it before they render judgment on the book. Always a great idea, by the way. Um, and then, because I find most people that read it are like, well, I may not agree with it, but I don't understand what the big deal is. And then uh, let's throw up the other one, which is A Racing Hell by Francis Chan. So that would be kind of like your point counterpoint in the evangelical conversation. Um, and, uh, and, and, and people can just read that. If they want to dive more into this whole heaven-hell thing, read both of those. Um, I definitely have my favorite. Uh, our listeners will know which one that is. But I will let you read and let you decide and let you Google your own scholarship because one of them lands squarely in the realm of what scholarship says frequently, and one of them does not. So I'll let you decide. Happy hunting. Okay, so before I get myself in any more trouble, we'll just keep moving, not in the passage, but in this idea here. So um, 
This is one instance where I have to pause and make sure I don't flippantly just kind of throw this away because this talks about eternal, what was the phrase, Brent? Um, eternal fire, right? Uh, yeah, eternal fire. And we'll remember that the word eternal here, the word aeonios, aeonios, that'll be talked about in one of these books. Um, but aeonios is a qualitative term. It's not a quantitative term. Eternal in the Greek and in the Hebrew, but in the Greek is not a term that speaks of... When you think of eternal, Brent, what do you typically think of just in your typical Western mind? Going on forever. Going on, and which is a quantitative term, correct? Right. It's like it starts now or it starts then or whatever, but it, it starts at some point and then goes on. It's a quantitative reference. It's infinite, but it's, yeah. It's, exactly. It's real time. Yeah, and the, just even the term infinite refers to quantity and all those kind of things. And yet the term here in the Greek and in the Hebrew, but in the Greek relevant here, um, is a qualitative term. It is a kind of of fire. And it is a kind of reality that is transcendent, if you will. There are many things that we find in this world that are temporary. And the New Testament constantly talks about temporary and eternal, temporary and eternal. There are things that um, the quality of them is not lasting. It's the quality. They, They came into the story late. They will be leaving the story early because they are not made of the kind of stuff. They're not made of the quality that is the eternal, that always has been, that is, and always will be, like that God stuff. And yet there is some stuff that is made of God stuff. That kind of that kind of stuff is eternal, aeonios. Well, this fire here is aeonios. It is eternal. It is a kind of fire. There is a picture here. Um, one might think of, uh, especially that last phrase. So we had eternal fire in verse 8. And then uh, verse 9, thrown into the fire of hell, Gehenna specifically. And, and that one makes me think of uh, the end of the book of Revelation, which we will get to later. But the dragon, all of his followers, um, uh, uh, all, everything that represents evil and the order of death is thrown into the fire of hell. And the question will be when we get to Revelation, is that like a, is that a literal fire? Is that a literal lake? Is that a literal, the lake of fire? Is that, is that a place or is it this poetic, prophetic, qualitative picture of what happens to evil? Um, another way to look at this would be to jump over to another passage. One of my favorite coming from first Corinthians, uh, give us the verses that you're going to be reading, Brent, and read us this, one of my favorite passages. First uh, Corinthians three, starting in verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Okay, let me stop you right there. So Paul says that there's a foundation. and In the kingdom of God, we build on the same foundation. That's Jesus. No question about that. But Paul then goes on to say, you get to choose how you build on this Christ foundation. And you can pick. You can use gold, silver, and costly stones, or you can use wood, hay, or straw. But Paul says there is coming a day, the day, capital D, where all of that will be tested with fire, and the fire will prove the quality of the work, the quality of the materials that you choose to build with. So if you put gold, silver, or precious stones to the fire, Brent, what happens? They should be fine. They should be fine. In fact, the word is what? Not just fine, but um, re 
Oh, refined. Refined. Yeah. Right? You put gold and fire and all of the, you put, let's do silver. You put silver and fire and what rises to the top? The, what do they call it? Dross? Dross, right? And you have to scrape that dross off. But then what you have is a purer, a more pure silver than you had when it went into the fire. Fire will make good quality even better. Of course, if we have wood, hay, or straw, what's going to happen to that, Brent? Burns up. It's going to burn up. And so let's hear the rest of what he says here in this passage. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Let's love that verse. Only as one escaping through a wall of flames. Like you'll be saved. You'll get in. You'll be as naked as the day you were born because you were wearing a suit made out of hay and you were in a building made of wood and you're sleeping on a bed of straw and it's all going to get burned up. But you can build your life on things that actually last a quality of work. And so we pause here just to make a, like to reflect What is being talked about both by Jesus and by Paul, and I'm going to argue by John later, is a qualitative poetic image. There is a, there is a, there, if, if you don't, if we go back to this Matthew passage, if you don't, if you let, what is it, what is the word he said? Woe to those who, um, that woe to those that because of the things that cause people to stumble. And, and Jesus starts talking about if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, if your eye causes you to stumble, like gouge those things out, cut those things off, throw those things away, because it would be better to enter the kingdom of God to experience eternal living, eternal life, missing a hand, than it would be to let your hand actually keep you from that and end up being, at the end of all of this, having nothing to show. Like there was no gold, silver, precious stones. Maybe, in fact, Jesus suggests you don't even make it through the wall of flames, all because this hand or this eye or this thing caused you to stumble. Like Jesus says, don't let anything get in the way of experiencing the life that God called you. And of course, we hear this and we immediately project a bunch of systematic theology, a bunch of theology of hell, about heaven. We start to ask questions of, does Jesus really want us to cut off body parts? Like most of us don't ask those questions, but I've heard people do it. Like, no, what is the rabbinic point that is sitting just here under the surface? Jesus saying, do not cause other people to stumble. And for that matter, don't even let little things in your own life let you stumble. Get rid of anything that keeps you from experiencing the full, abundant, real life of the kingdom of God. That's what I got to say about that. Next section. All right. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. All right. This this little mini parable is a part of a larger parable told in Luke chapter 15. So I think you have that passage, Brent. We just heard the one in Matthew. Let's hear the one in Luke and compare the minor differences uh, and then see what we might be able to see in Matthew. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Which, by the way, um, Kenneth Bailey does a great teaching on all this stuff, by the way. Um, I cannot remember which book that is in, so I will not be 
hyperlinking that in the show notes because I would have to figure out which book that is. But this um, this great uh, shepherd, what kind of a shepherd loses sheep? A, not a very good one because you don't lose sheep. A sheep know their, know their voice. Sheep are stupid. Sheep do what the shepherd wants them to do. So you have to be a pretty bad shepherd to lose sheep in the first place. But if you did lose a sheep, that 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 shepherd is going to get a sheep back. And he doesn't leave the 99. It says in the open country. I don't think the insinuation is that he leaves them alone in the open country. He has other hired hands. Every shepherd always does throughout all of ancient biblical history. So I think that's the assumption there as he leaves them with the other shepherds, the other hired hands. But he leaves them there in the open country to graze and do their thing. And he goes off to find this lost sheep. Go ahead. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Okay, now, what does it mean when he says, Rejoice with me? What do you suppose that means in the ancient world, Brent? Be happy for me. Give me an air high five over the phone. Okay. Is it, do you think that's what it is? Well, it seems like there's like a party element. Like, yeah, absolutely. Let's get everybody together. Let's have some dinner. If we're going to rejoice, we're definitely going to be throwing a party. We're going to have a dinner. We're going to have... And what are we going to serve at that dinner, Brent? Uh, lamb. <laughs> Now, let's hope for a moment that it wasn't the lamb that he found, <laughs> but maybe. I just don't want it to turn it that dark and that morbid. But let's make sure that we make sh- that we understand this, this story here in Luke 15 is not a story about God was down a sheep and he went and he found, he was down to 99 and now he's back to 100. And that's why we're throwing a party is because nobody is missing. We're all back to 100 because that's not how the story goes. Like he's still down to 99 sheep. He's not throwing a party because the sheep has come back home. He's throwing a party for another purpose. Go ahead and finish the passage. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Okay, so in this story, and it's going to be replayed with the woman in the lost coin, but we won't take the time to do that. And it's going to even be replayed in the prodigal son. But in this story, this shepherd finds his sheep and is so happy not that he even takes a sheep and throws a party to bless his friends to rejoice. So what are they celebrating if it's not the fact that the sheep has come back home? What will they be celebrating, Brent? What is the party about? Just because things are good? Almost. It's actually a better answer than I usually get from people that I'm usually talking to. We're celebrating because God is the type of God that finds things. And God just loves finding things. He just loves it. Like, that is like one of his favorite things to do is to find things, to find lost things. Now, we might not be like, "Ah, I don't know if I see that in Luke 15, Marty. I don't know if I like that. And we can talk Luke 15 in some other time. Come to Israel with me. It's one of my most fun lessons that happens in Chorazin. And if you want to know when we're going to Israel, sign up for the Bema Messenger. Absolutely. Do that. BemaDiscipleship.com slash news. Um, But let's go back to Matthew and read now. Uh, I I got it. I'll read it. You did it the first time. I'll do it this time. What do you think? Um, If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier, listen to the difference, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. What is the shepherd happy about? He's happy about the fact that that one sheep has been found. The celebration is about a God, a shepherd who will go and find lost things, not sinners who repent. That would be backwards. Listen to the last line. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing 
that any of these little ones should perish. This story is about a God who will do anything to find the outsiders. And what is Matthew's agenda, Brent? The mumser. The mumser. So that fits. So great little mini parable there. We could talk Peshat Ramez. Another another difference since you uh, pointed it out specifically about the open country. In the Matthew passage, he, what does it say? He left the 99 on the hills. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Which is interesting. I wonder if that's just a difference of Jesus was in a different place and they were in the hills yeah. when he told the Matthew version yeah. and he was in the open yeah. country when it, he told the Luke version. Well, it could be. That's a good point. Um, could be just the difference in the words that Matthew and Luke choose to use because open country could easily be wilderness. Hills would be like the Judean hills, which would be the wilderness. Uh, obviously I contend that Matthew could be written in Hebrew originally, so it might even be the right word to be wrestling with anyway. So who knows? Good question. No good answer. All right. Not for me anyway. So for any, we just mentioned Pardes just a moment ago for anybody that might want to like wrestle with the Pardes of this parable, um, consider potentially Ezekiel 34, a passage about shepherds. Being Specifically the, the Matthew version of this parable? Yes, yes, okay. yes. Thank you, thank you. Um, because if it's Luke, I'm definitely going to push for Ezekiel 34. I think that is absolutely the right remes. Matthew could be something else. It could even be a, some passages out of Jeremiah. Go get on BibleGateway.com and search for references about shepherds and sheep. You're going to bump into things even in Zechariah. You're going to bump into, there could be some other potential possibilities other than Ezekiel 34 here and uh, and are just juicy. So you can do that on your own. Enjoy the Pardes hunt. All right, now let's keep going, Brent. Next section. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Which, by the way, what has Jesus taught us all throughout his ministry about how we treat pagans and tax collectors, Brent? Pretty well. (laughs) So before we're like, yeah. So if people don't listen to you, treat them like garbage. Excommunicate them. Shun them. Treat them like... No, wait. Jesus has always taught us to love our enemies. To Go love. to dinner with them. Absolutely. Invite them into your house and invite them to be your disciple. Correct. So whatever Jesus is saying here, which is some pretty good stuff, and I don't want to take away from what he is getting at. Um, let's just remember that he's not painting some absolute grim picture of the way we destroy these disobedient parishioners in our church. So now we have this famous Matthew 18 passage. A lot of us love to use this as a very strict formula on how to deal with conflict, which is fine. Some of us really love to gravitate towards formulas. It's not a bad one. Like if you need a formula, it's not bad to use the one directly out of the text. I'm not going to, but let's also not lose just the greater point that Jesus is making. He's not necessarily giving us a step-by-step way of dealing with conflict. And even, I, I was just reading some of the footnotes, the, uh, apparently this is a contentious setup because it says if your brother or sister sins, and then there's a footnote, some manuscripts sins against you. Right. So is this your brother or sister sins in general, or does it have to be a sin against you specifically? That's a great point. Absolutely. Yep. So what is just the general move? Like, let's just make the big observations that always seem to kind of go unchecked, because they will be just as helpful for us here as the really stringent step-by-step, this is how you deal with conflict, which again is good, do that, 
But let's also notice just the big sweeping movements here. Why is it go to them one-on-one and then take one other person with you and then go before the elders and then the whole church? What is the big idea that's present there, Brent, as Jesus talks about these things? When we're dealing with conflict, what? Uh, Escalate appropriately. Sure. Or to state it in the negative, keep the circle, not the negative, but to state it another way, keep the circle as... As small as possible. As small as possible. When dealing with conflict, do not get more people involved than you need to. I've got to tell you, even right now in my life, the things that I'm learning about what happens when I do this poorly. And again, I could I could very easily be like, I'm following the formula of Matthew 18. And yet I could be missing the whole point of the teaching of Matthew 18, which is when you have a problem, try to resolve it with as small and as immediate of a circle of people as is necessary. If you can just get it done between the two of you, then do that. But if that doesn't work, don't pla- don't blast it all over Facebook, says Jesus. Not really, but that's what I would say today. He would say, go grab somebody else that knows you guys enough and can get in on the conversation and help make this work. And yes, if that doesn't help, then go to the next step. But at every increasing step, try to resolve this with as small of a group of people as is needed to find that reconciliation, that resolution. I mean, just that principle, if we would spend more time talking about that, rather than the step-by-step process of how to deal with personal conflict with other people, we would, I feel like we would get a lot more mileage out of that. And I don't say that because it's easy, because I'm like the worst person at this. <laughs> so I don't speak from like all this great experience of keeping the circle small. I'm horrible at keeping my mouth shut, but... It's very challenging. It is very challenging. So let's go ahead and pick up where you left off. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Which, by the way, is an interesting place for that statement to be made. Unlike Peter's great confession... And sometime we'll talk about binding and loosing. We'll do that in uh, probably the next session, Brent. We'll talk about binding and loosing. So we'll just put a bookmark in this for now, not today. But an interesting place to talk about binding and loosing here when when we're talking about personal conflict. And Jesus is saying, as you resolve personal conflict, the things that you bind and loose, I'm going to let you bind and loose. You get to bind up and loose up what you're going to do as you resolve personal conflict. I find that so beautiful and interesting, but an interesting place to find that verse. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Okay, this seems to get Peter's attention, all of this teaching about how to make things right with your brother. So Peter jumps in. Go ahead. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And there, the, the manuscripts all agree sins against me. Yeah, absolutely. Might might speak to why yep. some of them included in the previous part. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to jump in right here because some have even suggested that Peter may, uh, I like the new NIV here. It usually translates brother and sister when we have that neutered inclusive noun. In this case, some have suggested he may have actually been talking about his actual brother, like Andrew. <laughs> like some have suggested, I wonder if Andrew was just always causing problems and Peter's like, or maybe even had some really serious family baggage, or I don't know. I don't know if we have enough information to lean that direction. It definitely fits with the idea of being able to point out whatever you're talking about. Sure. <laughs> what about what about my brother? How many times do I have to forgive my brother? You know, this one, right over my right shoulder, that one. Um, but yeah, and he says uh, seven times, which makes sense because seven would be what? 
Completion. Completion. By the way, as I was studying this with uh, some of our friends uh, out at that whole Truman State place, um, they they dug up a uh, a an oral tradition found in Jewish um, Talmud. We weren't sure how far back it dated, if it dated early enough, but it wasn't the Mishnah. So it's the earliest, it's the earlier portion of the written canonized oral tradition. They did find a reference where it said you were required to forgive your brother up to three times. After three times, you were willing, you were, you were now exempt from forgiveness and you could let them go. Which I find interesting because Peter ups the ante. I wonder if Peter thought he was being like super holy. Like I know that the tradition of the elders right now, Jesus, is that I have to forgive my brother three times, which is a good number about what? What was three stand for, Brent? Community. Community. So of course, forgiveness, three times, restoring community. And Peter's like, oh, I wonder if that's not complete enough. Is it seven times, Jesus? And Jesus responds how? Go ahead. Well, and maybe, maybe depending on the date of the decision for three, like maybe it was just a current debate. Right. Yeah. And Peter just wants to know like, yeah. hey, everybody's like trying to figure out where this is. So like, what, what do you think, Jesus? Seven? Does that seem right to you? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Why does Jesus say that? Why 77? So if I actually keep track, Brent, if it's 70 times seven, then when I'm done with 70 times seven, do I no longer have to forgive? Why 70 times seven, Brent? It's in the text. It's in the text. Goes all the way back to, can you remember where, Brent? Cain and Abel? Yeah, no, no. Cain, the line of the Cain. The line of Cain, yeah. It ends up the seventh generation. <laughs> the seventh generation of Cain's line ends with a guy by the name of Lamech. And if you remember, you're reading that story, and Lamech was avenged. Excuse me. Uh, Cain was avenged because of what he did to Abel. God said, if anybody touches you, I will avenge your death seven times. And then there are seven generations of descendants. And Lamech eventually calls his wives, Adah and Zillah. And he says, listen to me, wives. I have uh, hurt, I have killed a man for injuring me, murdered a man for hurting me, or essentially the essence of that same thing. And, and, his, and his words are, if my great-great-great-great-grandfather Cain was avenged seven times, then may I be avenged 70 times seven. Essentially, Lamech had become the full manifestation of what happens in an, when evil becomes a lineage. When sin becomes a family, it ends up arriving at Lamech. Seven times culminates in 70 times seven. So when Jesus references to Peter, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven, it's the only time that that reference shows up in scripture is in Lamech. Peter immediately knows Jesus is essentially saying, Peter, you're going to have to out forgive evil. Like there is no end. If Lamech is avenged 70 times seven, that's how much you're going to have to forgive your brother when it comes to this work of forgiveness. A tough lesson, a tough word, a tough teaching, but then he throws in for good measure a parable. Go ahead. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Okay. Uh, 10,000 bags of gold, by the way. Um, the equivalent of about three lifetimes worth, uh, it depends on how you do the math. Everybody talks about it in a different way. As I've been taught, about three lifetimes worth of salary is the amount or 10,000 bags of gold. It's it's an insane amount of gold. It's it's a lot of gold, which raises a question. I don't care how big your bag is. That is a lot of gold. (laughs) Which, uh, raises a question. What kind of king allows a person to raise that kind of debt? But nevertheless, continue. Since he was not able to pay, naturally... The master, naturally, it's not in the text, by the way. (laughs) 
personal commentary. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Okay, now I believe all the way back at the beginning of session two, we actually talked a little bit about this parable when we talked about Samson, Shimshon, and dropping the jawbone. And I think we referenced this in a lot of great observations that we take away from this story. So we don't have to do that all over again. You can always go back and listen to that if you need to. But let's wrestle with the pardes here, right? Okay, so... Um, what's just some Pasha observations you can make with me here, Brent? Let's do that. What are just some? Well, one thing I was thinking about as I was going through that is, uh, so 10,000 bags of gold couldn't repay it. Right. So the master ordered that, uh, he and his wife and his children and everything he owns be sold. Right. It's like, well, how could, how could that amount of stuff come anywhere close to repaying the debt? Right. It doesn't seem like it's possible. Yep. So then... Uh, then the servant starts begging and he says, no, 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 just be patient and I'll pay everything back. Well, that doesn't really seem possible either. Right. That's <laughs> like, a line. What that's amount a total of, line. what amount of time? Absolutely. Could possibly do that. Without a doubt. So the master cancels the debt. Uh, which is a move of compassion, not of logic. Cause the king knows. Sure. Like there's no way the king is like, oh, okay. If I give you time, I'll get my 10. No, no, no. Cause he cancels the debt. He doesn't just give him time to pay it back. He just says, you know what? I'm moved with compassion. Forget about it. And I also find it interesting that the uh, the original servant says, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. And then the fellow servant, he says, be patient with me and I will pay it back. So is that yes. just is that just like a, he doesn't use the word everything. So is that just like, it's not even that much. I'll pay it yeah, back. I don't know. It's a good question. Whereas I, yeah. the original servant has to say, no, I'll pay back everything. Like, right. Yeah, that's a good that question. Because I'm sure that difference. that word exists there in the Greek. Um, if I remember right, what would be would be the word panta in the Greek. Um, and then there's uh, let's see. Um, y- you also brought up the amounts. Uh, and this servant, the second servant, simply owns three months' wages. So there's three months' salary versus three lifetime lifetime's worth of salary. So th- those are all just some Peshat. And obviously, this first servant, just on a Peshat level, this first servant has been in the presence of a compassionate king and has left the presence of the king unchanged and then projects this unchanged heart dysfunctionally onto others around him. That's the tragedy of the Peshat reading of the parable. So then we want to look for the remes. And there's a lot of fun things. Like I've been wrestling with phrases like, you wicked servant. Like Bible Gateway, that and find some fun stuff. Or um, let's see here, the servant falling on his knees. I feel like there's some stuff in the Old Testament in, in reference to that. Or the one that really seems to get me is he grabs him by the throat and begins to choke him. That's a weird phrase to me. So I have like wrestled with some stuff. But again, uh, one of our 
good friends um, at Truman was doing some reference on the Remes, and he came up with the Book of Esther, because the Book of Esther, the payment that Haman arranges with Artaxerxes is 10,000 talents for the Jews, and it mentions women and children, which is, again, you even pointed out that reference here. That seems like a pretty direct tie. What I love about that is the book of Esther is really, and we, we did this, and if you read that book we recommended by David Foreman, let's tag it again, Brent, uh, The Queen You Thought You Knew by Rabbi David Foreman. Great book about Purim and the story of Esther. Um, we had, we had our podcast on Esther. We're also going to plug that in the show notes as well. You can go back and remind yourself of that. But that story is really the story of Esther remembering where she comes from and a story about forgiving your brother because Esther is a descendant of Benjamin and she's being called to save the descendants of Judah. Well, that's the storyline that happens all throughout. And it goes all the way back to which story? The story of who, Brent? Uh, Judah and Tamar. Uh, well, yeah, in essence, yes. So the story of Joseph is a larger, bigger story, Judah and Tamar specifically, but the larger story of Joseph. There are so many parallels that I believe we went over in the Esther podcast between Esther and Joseph. So many parallels between Esther and Joseph. And the Joseph story was all about the theme of what, Brent? Uh, forgiveness. Forgiveness, which is the perfect remez to, to land the drosh of Jesus's teaching. One last beautiful nugget that I'll leave with you, and I'm just going to encourage people to actually listen to the sermon that we are going to plug in the show notes, a uh, sermon from Truman State. I was just there last week. That's why i am got Truman State on the brain right now. But um, we, uh, they preached a sermon on the parable um, many moons ago on the, the parable of the unforgiving servant and preached by Reed Dent. You can listen to that. It's just a fantastic, phenomenal teaching. Listen to that and it'll go into a lot of just great detail. I think he nails it. One of the things that he brings out is the Greek phrase. Go ahead and read that. Let's see. Read to us um, verse at the very end, Brent, verse 34. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Okay. So there's this, there's this pronoun issue, until he should pay back all he owed. Now, when we read that, what's your assumption? Who is paying back what, Brent? Uh, the servant is paying back the master. The servant is paying back the master. Until the all. servant should pay back all the servant owed the master. Exactly. And yet the Greek is so interesting in what it seems to be open to and apply, because the word pay back is actually the word release, forgive, cancel, or repay. And then if that's the case, the second he pronoun might not be the same servant. In essence, the master could be saying, until you learn how to forgive, which is exactly what Jesus says in the next verse, until you, first servant, servant A, learn how to forgive servant B. It, so the question is, does the servant have to repay the 10,000 bags of gold? Or does he just have to repay the three months salary? Because the second he in the Greek could easily be servant B. I am going to make you pay back or release his debt before I let you go. Can, in fact, uh, we even actually talked to somebody who was a much better Greek expert than we were, and they said, absolutely, that works in the Greek. Um, in fact, the Greek might even insinuate that. 
Now, if that's the if that's the case, I'll read you a note from Reed that he sent me. Uh, in other words, it's like the unmerciful servant is thrown into prison and given the key at the same time. Like he has the ability to get himself out of prison. The prison that he is in is a prison of his own making. Because of his unwillingness to forgive, he finds himself in his own prison. And the master says, well, when you want to forgive him of his debt to you, you will find yourself forgiven. But if you don't want to forgive him, you will find yourself imprisoned, which is just a beaut. Just go listen to the sermon. It's so good. That little nugget will come towards the end. Spoiler alert. And uh, just such a good, such a good little teaching there. But love that. The key to your own prison. All right. Well, we made it through Matthew 18 at a blockbuster length rate. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we'll try not to do too many more of this length, but we had a lot of stuff to cover. And a lot Every of, verse. Like, well, that's true. Yes. <laughs> but boy, we brought, we brought some, we brought some stuff here and uh, we didn't even, we didn't even really dig that deep on half of it. So <sighs> listeners are going to have to do, the, do their own digging. That's the idea. That's what we do. If we in, equip people and release them. If anyone finds anything interesting or has some thoughts or comments, uh, be sure to get a hold of us. You can find Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. We love to hear from you. Uh, you can also just go to BeamontDiscipleship.com, go to the news tab and sign up for the newsletter, uh, check out our Facebook page. There's plenty of ways to, to get in touch and get in community and discuss what, what we're talking about in the text. So anyway, thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs> Please edit out my humming. Mm. Uh, let's see here. Uh, I was going to say something. Mm.